today we're starting a brand new series uh, called Classic Rock. Anybody interested in Classic Rock? Hey, and by coincidence, um, Classic Rock in Luke, by coincidence, I didn't plan this, but I woke up and, and I grabbed this shirt. <laughs> the Grateful Dead. Right, how fitting is that? Now Mitch and I are kind of twinsies because he has a tattoo of the Grateful Dead teddy bear and I have a, a shirt uh, of the Grateful Dead. Are you allowed to say that in church? Grateful Dead? We're kind of Grateful Dead, right? We're dead to sin and we're grateful that we're alive in Christ. It works. It works. We'll get there. Uh, how about Eagles? Anybody Eagles fans? Yeah, absolutely. One of my favorite classic rock songs is Hotel California. Right? It's just enchanting. It's a fantastic. It's, it's one of those good old songs that we've all heard a thousand times. What's interesting about that song is what I grew up thinking that song meant. <laughs> Me and my friends would hear lyrics like, um, you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. And we go, oh, that's about hell. You can't leave hell. You can check out any, but you can never leave. They try to stab it with their steely eyes, but they just can't kill the beast, Satan. So I grew up believing that, right? And, and it wasn't until I was much older, like eight years ago, uh, Mitch. <laughs> I was having a conversation with Mitch, and we we're just going back and forth about songs that we um, knew and we were singing. And, and, and it wasn't Hotel California, but he stopped me in the middle of the song that I was going through. And he's like, dude, do you know what that song is about? And I'm like, no, what's it about? <laughs> and he starts explaining the words to me. I'm like, oh, I had no idea. And it hit me. I, I, I grew up listening to these fantastic songs, but I never paid attention to what the words were actually saying. You ever have one of those moments where someone says, this is what that song is about? And you're like, oh, that's what that song's about? I can never sing that in public again. It happens a lot with music. But it also happens a lot with stories that we grew up hearing in the Bible. Just these, these good old stories uh, that we've heard a thousand times, but quite often we realize that we didn't quite catch exactly what it was saying. Today's passage is one of those stories that I'm talking about. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. You've all heard the story, the story of Jesus calming the storm. So Luke chapter 8, verse 22, uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about this and, and look at it together. Uh, verse 22, one day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got in the boat and set out. Luke uh, begins this uh, passage with a, a vague description of when it took place. He says one day as if it was just kind of like some leisure plans that happened one day. Each writer of the Gospels, though, has a different emphasis in the way they write. So one will put their piece together and, and they'll kind of highlight um, more important events that took place, while others would, would stick to a, a chronological sequence of events. Um, and sometimes in order to get the proper context, you have to kind of look at the, the Gospels and put them together to see how they fit. So as you line up each story in the Gospels, it's clear that this one day, Jesus had spent near the entire day on the shores of Galilee teaching to the crowds. 
If you know anything about public speaking, it, it takes a lot out of you, especially if you've been doing it all day to a bunch of people. So as the day got later, Jesus finally tells his disciples, hey, let's go to the other side of the lake. He's looking for a reprieve, just a little break, and his disciples are obliged to follow, of course. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of this story and I imagine what it looked like for them to be in this boat, I imagine these these 13 guys crammed into this tiny little dinghy like sardines. Um, You know, a very small boat, very little room to move, maybe a single mass with some oars, kind of like a simple drawing that a kid would draw. But in reality, um, this is probably a fishing boat used by one of the disciples. Um, And it would have been of a substantial size, large enough to carry a a giant net of fish and certainly large enough to carry these 13 men uh, who followed Jesus and perhaps even some women uh, that that became disciples of Jesus earlier in chapter 8. So they set out. Verse 23. As they sailed, he, Jesus, fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him up saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. So they set out across the Sea of Galilee, also called the Lake of the Gennesaret in in places in the gospel, if you see that, um, which at the widest point is eight miles long. So it would have taken some time to get from point A to point B, especially depending on the currents and the winds. Uh, Plenty of time for a guy to catch some much-needed seas after a a beautiful uh, day of teaching on this wonderful sunset background. But not long after Jesus is napping, that beautiful sunset, that backdrop, turns into this dark, swirling vortex of doom, which apparently was a common thing that happened uh, at the Sea of Galilee because of its topography. Uh, The Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level, and it's surrounded by hills. So you had the cool Mediterranean uh, sea ocean air coming in through ravines and valleys, and it would meet the hot, um, hot air from the eastern hills, and they would collide together, causing a storm to happen in a matter of minutes right over the Sea of Galilee, oftentimes very ferocious. Matthew, he he uses verbiage that describes it like an earthquake on water, that it hits hard and suddenly. You definitely did not want to be in the middle of this lake when this storm hit. But there they were, the disciples surrounded by waves, buffeting the boat left and right, eventually coming over the sides of the boat, drenching everybody and threatening to swamp or to sink the entire boat and everyone with it. We've seen these in movies, right? You get the picture of this just dark, blustery night. And people are yelling and screaming. You know, people are going overboard. They're hanging onto ropes and things like that. You, you get the kind of impending doom that the disciples must have felt that day. They knew they were in deep, deep trouble, and everyone begins to lose it. Everyone, that is, except for Jesus. He's still sawing logs in the back of the boat. Waves are crashing, wind's blowing, boats are sinking, and Jesus is is snoozing. Talk about a heavy sleeper, right? Good land. Mark's account says that Jesus was in the back of the boat on a cushion. 
Um, and, and these boats were typically equipped with this, uh, so those who were taking a break from fishing could lay down and get some rest while the others continued fishing. Uh, but it was, probably, it was probably an area that was covered or below the deck, um, which would have protected Jesus from the wind and the waves. Um, because I don't care who you are. If your face is getting pummeled with waves, you're going to wake up, right? Jesus or not, it doesn't matter. Um, and we see that it's not the storm that woke Jesus up, but in fact, we see that it was his disciples that woke him up. They were yelling at him, Jesus, we're going to drown. And Mark adds, don't you even care? And they, they looked to him in this state of, of sheer panic. They don't look at him and say, oh, it's Jesus. He can save us. Let's ask him to stop the storm. At this point in their relationship, they didn't grasp who Jesus was. Yes, Jesus was a teacher who taught radical theology. Yes, he was a miracle worker who, who did some really cool miracles of healing people and raising people from the dead. But the notion of Jesus' deity and therefore his ability to save them from nature was nowhere in the minds of the disciples, which I'll explain more in a few minutes. So from their current perspective, what could Jesus do to save them from drowning? I think they were yelling at him, just, just grasping at straws, screaming in panic for help without any real belief that help would actually come. So they yell at Jesus in vain, looking for just some sort of comfort as the end draws near. Can you imagine the despair they must have felt? Can you imagine what it was like for Jesus to wake up to that? Have you ever woken up to an emergency? It's awful. It is absolutely awful. People are yelling, emergencies happen, good morning sunshine, right? It, it is awful. There was one time in, when I was like seventh grade, um, we had an emergency at my house. Uh, my brother, it was like 11 o'clock at night, my brother got this brilliant idea. Um, you know those, those, those Bic lighters that say on the bottom, like not refillable or do not attempt to refill? You know, the little throwaway ones. He apparently thought that was a suggestion because uh, he took some Zippo fluid and he tried to refill this non-refillable lighter. Long story short, we speed up the process. He caught his room on fire. Right? Smoke alarms are going off. People are yelling. They're running around their underwear because they don't know what's going on. And everyone starts running down the stairs to get outside in safety. Everyone, that is, except for one person this guy. <laughs> Want to know why? Because apparently in all the hustle and bustle, my parents didn't think, hey, we should go wake Joey up. <laughs> truth, truth. I woke up. Yes, I'm here today. I woke up, but I only woke up to tell them to shut up because I was trying to sleep. I open the door, the, way, the, the, the fire's licking at my heels. I jump over the banister, nearly break my neck. It was horrible to wake up like that. At least Jesus' disciples woke him up. I'm not bitter, though. Okay. Now, here is where the rubber meets the road. What does Jesus do when he wakes up to this emergency going on? Verse 24. 
He got up and rebuked the winds and the raging water. The storm subsided and all was calm. Jesus did not run around panicking and yelling, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? But in a moment that couldn't have been predicted by any of the disciples, in a demonstration of power and absolute sovereignty that was unknown to mankind, Jesus stands up and commands that nature itself ceases its workings. And the Bible says in that instant, all was calm. only broken by a question. And he asks, where is your faith? In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. Jesus asks his disciples a very simple question. Where is your faith? You know, you hear people preach on this. And sometimes they'll, they'll give inflection to Jesus' words because they think this is how his attitude was when he was asking this question. So one might say he said it with disappointment. Another might say he said it completely irritated because they didn't get it yet. I say it depends on how much sleep he got during his nap. <laughs> At least that's how I would respond. But instead of wondering how Jesus asked that question, I wonder more about their response. We aren't told that they cheered for joy. We're not told that they sobbed in thankfulness. The only response we're told of is a quiet murmur that starts circulating around the boat. Even the winds and waves obey him. See, it's, it's this very question that shows us the fact that they didn't understand who Jesus was. So they weren't reaching out to him to be saved. They had no idea that he had that kind of power. They had no idea that he had that level of control over nature. They did now, didn't they? They just experienced a whole new level in understanding who Jesus was as he revealed himself to them that day by calming the storm. This is a, a good old passage, and I'm sure, like me, you've heard it um, preached a, a thousand times. From what I've heard, um, the focus is typically uh, on the fact that we all have storms in our life. And the preacher uh, would say that, that Jesus will calm that storm if we just have faith in him. Anyone else ever heard that? It sounds great. Don't get me wrong. It sounds great. But it's a very romantic application. And in fact, that's not what... This song is about, as good as it sounds, that's not what it's saying. Jesus did not calm the storm because his disciples had faith in him. 
as we just saw, they didn't understand that he had that type of power. So we can't say that Jesus will calm the storm if you just have faith in him. It's not what this, at least from this passage, we can't say that. Nor can we say that he will calm every storm or, or even any given storm. We can't say that God will definitely calm any given storm for that matter. Not that he can't, he absolutely can, but that he will calm the storm. Think about it. If he calmed every single storm that we faced, the disciples, they would have died rich old men. But instead, they died poor young martyrs. If he calmed every storm in our lives, nothing bad would ever happen to those who profess faith in him. So we can't say also that he'll calm every storm, at least from this passage. But if we stop to really listen to what these words are saying, we can understand and we can see what this song is really about. Now, if you break up most songs, there are three components to them. Um, most songs have a verse or two, right? And it kind of lays the foundation um, for the song. On a dark desert highway, cool wind in my hair, right? It's the verse, right? Up ahead in the distance, I saw shimmering lights. My head grew heavy and my sight grew dim. I had to stop for the night. Somebody catch my wife. She usually starts to swoon when I sing. <laughs> that's, that's the verse. You all right, sweetheart? Okay, fantastic. Um, that, that's the verse. It lays the foundation. Um, there's typically also a bridge uh, in a song, which is kind of like a, a musical break in the song. Um, usually sounds different from the verse or the chorus, completely different. Um, and it's oftentimes just like a cool side note to the song. Um, so there are bridges. And then, obviously, uh, we have the chorus or the hook, the part that's repeated. Welcome to the Hotel California. Right? The, the, song, the part of the song that gets stuck in your head. Everyone familiar with these terms? I want to make sure before we move on because it's imperative that you do. Um, <laughs> so we got a verse, bridge, and chorus. If this passage, Luke 8, 22 through 25, were a song, we could make clear-cut delineations as to a couple of verses, a bridge, and a chorus in this classic rock passage. So let's take a few minutes and kind of look at those and see what this song is really about. Sound good? Even if you don't, we're going to do it. Okay. Um, remember, the verses lay the groundwork of the chorus. So in looking at this passage as, as a song, the first verse tells us that Jesus does not worry about the storms in our life. There is a fascinating contrast between Jesus and the disciples on the boat in the storm. The disciples were terrified. Even the professional fishermen who were used to bad weather which tells you how rough this storm really was. But Jesus was at peace in the back of the boat. The disciples frantically trying to bail water out. Jesus at rest. 
A situation that was fraught with danger in the eyes of the disciples was no cause for concern for Jesus. And the same goes with us. Now, I don't say that to mean that we, we, we shouldn't be concerned because um, everything is going to work out the way we want it in the end. I, I'm not trying to say that because things don't always work out the way we want it, does it? We'll discuss that more in, in a few minutes. <laughs> the truth that I'm trying to convey here is that in the scheme of all eternity, Jesus doesn't feel the same immediacy that I feel in my storm. He's not panicking and worrying about what to do. He absolutely cares, but he is not wringing his hands over my predicaments, which we all have, right? We all have predicaments, and maybe you're going through one right now. <coughs> maybe you, you've lost a job or things have, have become extremely difficult for you in your job. Maybe you're battling depression. Maybe you've lost a loved one. M my sister has been going through a storm for over 10 years now. At the age of three, my niece, um, they found that she had a tumor on her brainstem. It's a benign tumor, uh, but it was still very life-threatening because as it grew, her brain function started to shut down. And eventually, they told us, it would grow until the point she would just fall asleep and not wake back up. It's a tough storm. The wind kicked up. The winds, the waves started slamming us. She originally was told that she had 18 months to live. Can't imagine hearing that about my daughter, let alone my niece. Second opinion, thank God, said that it would be a much longer road. And that we had options and we had time. That was wonderful. But the waves kept hitting. Uh, she went through a surgery where they, they peeled back uh, nearly her whole face, went in through her neck to try and remove the tumor on her brainstem. Very delicate surgery. Took over 12 hours uh, because if they took too much of the brainstem, she could die. She could be paralyzed. So many different things. Um, after that long time, we got news that they removed 100% of that tumor. We thought the storm was over. And another wave hit, because months later it grew back. She went through chemotherapy, where for six months her and my sister lived in San Francisco, away from the rest of their family, um, and would go nearly day in and day out to get chemo didn't stop it. Finally, they did radiation. And the point we're at right now is that the radiation has um, stabilized the tumor. But she's still going for MRIs every quarter to make sure of that. That's been 10 years now. She's, she's 13. You can imagine the devastation that this storm 
has caused my family. We've, we've worried and gotten ourselves worked up, frantically trying to find a solution to no avail. We've panicked and yelled at God saying, don't you understand what's going to happen to her? Don't you even care? It seemed like God was a thousand miles away. It seemed like he was sleeping. But what this passage shows us is that Jesus was right there in the middle of the storm with his disciples. He wasn't sleeping because he didn't care. If he didn't care, he would have sent them on their way without him. He would have stayed back at shore. He was sleeping because he wasn't worried. And he asks, where is your faith? Storms are stinking hard. It's so hard to lose someone. It's so hard to get a worrying diagnosis. It is incredibly hard when your spouse has given up on your marriage. And sometimes it can feel like God is absent and just doesn't care. The thing to know is that we can't mistake God's inactivity for his lack of caring. Take comfort in the fact that he is there with you in the middle of your storm and that he's not worried about it. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, Be anxious about nothing, but in everything with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart in your mind, in Christ Jesus. So if our story was a song, the first verse would tell us that in the middle of our storm, Jesus isn't worried. He's at peace. Jesus had these 12 guys convinced that they should leave everything they have and everyone they know to follow him. But like we said earlier at this point in their relationship, Jesus was just a rabbi to them someone who taught theology and someone who performed cool miracles. So they've sacrificed everything and now have followed their rabbi onto this boat, finding themselves in the middle of a horrific storm and about to die. And we see that Jesus does, in fact, calm their storm. But the thing we need to check and ask ourselves and not assume is why did he calm the storm? As most of us would say, well, does to save the disciples, right? Yeah, he, he saved the disciples. He absolutely did. That, that happened. But that was not why he calmed the storm. The groundwork our second verse lays out is that he calmed the storm because he wanted to reveal to them who he was. He wanted to reveal to them that he is God and he is in control of everything. Psalm chapter 89, verse 9, describes the sovereign power of God. It says, you rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. 
This is just one of many psalms that mentions um, who it is that actually controls all of creation. And we see that exact same power in Jesus as he calms the storm in Luke 8. Jesus establishes a, a huge difference between him and every other person that the disciples have met, every other person that the disciples have even heard of. I mean, undoubtedly, uh, they had heard the stories of how Moses parted the Red Sea. They had heard the story of how Elijah called down fire from heaven and then called down rain from heaven. They had heard the story of Jonah calming the storm as he was tossed overboard. But the interesting thing is that Moses and Elijah prayed to God. They asked him to extend his power and provide for their situation. Jonah was trying to rectify his disobedience. In all of these situations, though, God is the acting agent over nature. He's acting on behalf of the man. But in Luke 8, Jesus doesn't pray and ask God to extend his power. He's certainly not trying to rectify any disobedience. He simply gets up and commands nature, explicitly telling us of his deity. He rules over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, he steals them because he is God and he is in control of everything. He's in control uh, when things are going well for us and he's in control when the spiral is spinning our lives around he has the power to command that storm to cease and it will be squelched in an, in an instance. But that doesn't mean that he necessarily will. Verse 2 of our song simply tells us that he is God and he is in control. It does not say that he will calm every storm we come across. He's not up in heaven looking down and going, this is how I'm going to save this person. This is how I'm going to save that person. This is how I'm going to stop this situation. This is how I'm going to stop that situation. You know what he's doing? He's looking at our lives and he's going, this is how I'm going to use this difficult situation. This is how I'm going to reveal myself through that storm. And he asks, where's your faith? God is using my niece's tumor to reveal himself to other kids who are going through the same kind of thing. God is using my sister to reveal himself to other parents who have to live day in and day out with the same horror. See, it's not about knowing that he will heal my niece. Even though that's my prayer, I pray that he heals her, but that's not what this passage is about. While I'm focused on the immediacy of her healing, Jesus' scope of this storm reaches through all eternity, and he can see exactly how he's going to reveal himself to each and every person through the chain of events that happens in the storm. It gives a whole new light to Romans 8, 28, which said God 
works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. In context, this verse speaks even more to the fact that God is in control because he takes every storm that we go through and he uses it for the collective good. Not necessarily your good or my good, but for the collective good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. His glory, his power, his control will be revealed to people regardless if the storm we face is calmed or not. And what's interesting is that people look for God in storms. Believers, non-believers alike, they, they are looking for God. They search for him. The storm that you're facing right now might be terrifying. It might be the hardest thing that you've ever had to deal with and it seems like things might be spinning out of control, but rest assured that it's not spinning out of God's control. He's going to reveal himself through it. You just might not realize it yet. There might be people that God has already placed in your life that he's going to reveal himself through your storm. He might use your storm to show people his love in your oikos. Because he is God and he's in control over everything. That's what our second verse tells us. And you know, a little side note, a little bridge um, to, to our song today is, is that because he is God, because he is in control, sometimes God leads us into the storms. Wasn't the disciples' idea to go out to, onto the lake? It's not like the, the storm was swirling already and they said, hey, should we go out there? Yeah, let's go ahead and do it. Uh, they had no clue the storm was going to happen. Jesus did. He said, let's go across the other side of the lake. And he purposefully chose to lead them into the thick of it. Sometimes he does the same thing with us. Might be hard for people to grasp that kind of idea. Um, can't comprehend how a loving God would intentionally allow bad things to happen to his people. But, but that's the thing. We're not God. We are incapable of grasping his, his eternal breadth in his eternal plan for humanity. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 reminds us, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The bridge of our song tells us that sometime God chooses to lead us into storms. And in the scheme of eternity, the dangers of our temporary storm can't compare with the beauty and the benefits of his eternal plan. So we've gone through two verses and the bridge in our song. Has anyone caught, uh, caught on to what the chorus is? See, every aspect of this song draws us back to the question of where our faith has been placed. And he asks, where is your faith? That's our chorus. The faith of the disciples was not in Jesus that day. 
they needed to be saved and their salvation rested in hopes that they might be saved. They had no idea that their Savior was right there with them and that their salvation needed to rest in Christ to Christ alone. Jesus revealed himself to them as their Savior. But he didn't just want them to have faith in him for their current situation. He wanted them to have faith in him for their eternity. Maybe your faith has been the same. Maybe you feel like um, things will work out for you. Maybe you feel like uh, your salvation rests in the hope that you just might go to heaven because you're a good person. And the reality is that your Savior is, is, is right there with you. He's here on this page. He's in this room right now as we speak. And he doesn't want you to have faith in him just for your storm and your current situation. He wants you to have faith in him for your eternity as well. And his display of sovereign power that day shows us that we can have faith in him. Later on, uh, while he calmed the, the storm of the disciples, the storm that he faced, which was much more gruesome, was not calmed. He endured the pounding waves of the sacrificial death. And he died uh, for our sins because the scope of the cross reached through all of eternity and how he would reveal himself to you today through that storm. God led Jesus into the thick of it and not even the dangers of the crucifixion could compare to the beauty and the benefit of the eternal plan he has for you. This is the gift he's given us all. Assurance of eternal life after the storms of this present life are over. And if you'd like to place your faith in him, you have only to admit that you're a sinner in need of a savior. Believe that Jesus died on the cross for you to save you from your sins and choose to follow him and put your faith in him alone. He desires that more than anything for us, even more than calming the storm that he went through. The implication of faith in Jesus' question isn't just about the initial belief in who he is. Um, our, our chorus is also about a practical faith that is constant through the storm you're facing. So when you're worried about things like the decisions that your children are making as they grow older, where is your faith? When you feel that uh, God is absent and he doesn't care that your marriage is falling apart, where is your faith? When perhaps he's led you to the brink of bankruptcy and beyond and you have absolutely no money to pay your bills, where is your faith? when the storm is not calmed in time. Where is your faith? Have faith in him for your situation, for your storm, and for your eternity. Jesus made it abundantly clear. He cares, but he's not worried because 
He is God and he is in control of everything and he will reveal himself through the storms in your life. That's what this song is all about. Let's pray. God, praise you that you are sovereign. Praise you that you are in control of all things. Praise you that we don't comprehend your thoughts. Praise you that your ways are not our ways, but they are so far above ours. Sometimes we can't understand why you would allow things to happen, God, and we pray that you would give us an extra portion of faith as you control it, and you will see fit how to use that. Use our storms to reveal yourself to others as we submit to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.